Senator Harry Reid is one of the worst liars ever to grace the national stage. He accused 2012 presidential candidate Mitt Romney of cheating on his taxes without any evidence, then celebrated his lie since it helped prevent Romney from becoming president. He called George W. Bush a liar who betrayed the country. He said paying taxes was voluntary, which is weird since it's not, attacked the Koch brothers as un-American, and admitted he'd rather let a child with cancer suffer than fund the government piecemeal. His Senate tenure was marked by conflict and cram downs, from the Obamacare fiasco to the destruction of the filibuster, both of which, by the way, will now backfire on Democrats. Yet, there was Reid, receiving accolades yesterday for his supposedly grand tenure in the Senate. And there he was, in the pages of the the New York Times, lecturing Americans about, of all things, the supposed scourge of fake news. The New York Times tweeted, quote, much of the responsibility for separating what's real and what's fake will, f- will fall on Democrats, writes Harry Reid. Uh-huh. Here are some of Reid's other sterling advice in the New York Times. Quote, to Republicans, I say recognize the difference between campaigning and governing and between knee-jerk opposition to the accomplishments of the Obama era. Really? Reid spent his entire career opposing Republican policy in knee-jerk fashion. And what accomplishments of the Obama era are worth upholding, exactly? Reid specifically cites Obamacare. He says it's a dramatic misreading of your mandate to destroy it, even though Obama never had a clear mandate to pass Obamacare, and the public spent the next six years destroying the Democrats for misreading their mandate in passing that monstrosity. Reid wrote to Democrats, I say it has never been more important to stand up for the things we believe in. We are entering a new gilded age. Uh, nobody's gotten richer off government than Reid. He spent his entire life in government making about 190000 bucks a year, and now he's worth somewhere between 3 and $10 million. The Clintons are wealthy because of political back-scratching, too. He wrote, quote, much of the responsibility for separating what is real and what is fake will fall on Democrats. Again, this is nuts. Reid is one of the worst liars in the history of the Senate. He also wrote, quote, when Democrats pick their fights next year, they can do so knowing that win or lose, they will be debating in a Senate that we made more open and more transparent. This is Reid defending the idiotic move of nuking the filibuster on cabinet picks. It's crippled his party going into an era of Republican leadership in the White House and Congress. Reid will significantly improve America by leaving the Senate. But recounting his legacy? Well, that should remind Americans just why Democrats should not be trusted with power. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. Oh, so much to get to today here on the Ben Shapiro Show. Plus, we're doing the mailbag today. We're broadcasting on Friday, obviously, because we missed a show earlier in the day. But we will be starting to do some Friday shows in the near future, and we have some surprises planned for that, which is why you need to subscribe at DailyWire.com. But first, before we get to today's show, we have to say hello to our advertisers over at Wink. So this is the, the, the company that you go to. Uh, for wine. So you don't know anything about wine, right? You, you don't know what wine to bring to your friend's house. Wine's really expensive. You don't know the difference between a Cabernet and a Marlowe. You don't know any of this stuff. But what you do know is what you like in terms of the food you like. So you go over to wink.com. You go over to their website. It's wink.com. And uh, it's trywink.com, rather. You go over to trywink.com. And when you go there, they have this little survey where it asks the kinds of foods that you like, what kind of food combinations you like, and then they pick a wine for you from their stock. They produce the wines themselves. The wines are really, really affordable. The, all my all my staff members have, have had their wine, and given the quality of the podcast, you would think they drink the wine all the time, but no, they usually have it only in their off hours. But they, they say that the, the wine is really, really good. Uh, they even had a wine party here that was that was really spectacular, apparently, um, and uh, they, they say the product's just great. And again, if you don't know anything about wine, but you want an affordable wine to bring over to your friend's house and make sure that you don't look like a fool, Wink is the place to go. It's trywink.com slash Ben, trywink.com slash Ben. You get 20 bucks off right now when you go to trywink.com slash Ben. They even cover the shipping. It's personalized against your palate, and the wine is apparently really, really good. All of my staffers swear by it, which means that either the wine's good or they're all alcoholics. All righty. So today we begin with the fact that Democrats have really given up the only tool they ever had for being able to hold Republicans in check. Uh, and, and number one, their, their, their biggest tool for holding Republicans in check for a long time was the media. Uh, they, they believed that the media would be able to stop Republicans from being terrible and vindictive and, and Republican. Uh, and now they've blown all credibility. And you can see how badly they've blown their credibility over this whole thing they've been discussing about fake news. Fake news, this, fake news, that. For those who have missed this controversy, Democrats have been saying now since the election that the reason Donald Trump was is because people believed fake news. Now, Democrats haven't really distinguished between headlines that are just flat out not true and messages that they don't like. So when Donald Trump says things like radical Islam is something Democrats never say and it's a threat, then a lot of people will say, well, that's fake news. I've heard Democrats say the word radical Islam. 
Right, but the overall message is true, and he was making an overstatement, but obviously he didn't mean for it to be taken literally. Fake news is like Pizzagate. Pizzagate is fake news because there's no evidence that Pizzagate is real, that there's this, this sex slavery ring being run out of this, this pizzeria in the middle of Washington, D.C. Um, but the Democrats don't bother to make that distinction, and they never have. In fact, they've, pro- they, they've actually promulgated fake news at a routine rate so long as it helps them. So that's actually destroyed their capacity to be fact-checkers. Nobody trusts you to check the facts if you're the person who promulgated half the false stories in the first place. The same people who complain about fake news are the people who are spending literally months talking about hands up, don't shoot, right? There's that famous picture from CNN of all of their anchors doing hands up, don't shoot. And those people on CNN, those same exact people, are now complaining about the scourge of fake news that drove Trump to the presidency. Well, at a certain point, we stopped listening to them. And that was real good for Donald Trump, both because it meant that we didn't listen to them when they slandered him, and it also meant that we didn't listen to them when they told the truth about him, which worked out really well for Donald Trump. It means that we're all going to have to find new sources of information, people that you trust to bring you the news. My general rule of thumb is, I mean, aside from the basic rules, like everything has to be double-sourced, my general rules of thumb on news to trust, news outlets to trust, is do they ever print stories that are not in their own economic self-interest? Do they ever print stories that don't that run counter to their own narrative? Do they ever print stories that debunk things that you know that they believe? And that's usually a pretty good indicator. That's why I think the Washington Post is better than the New York Times. The New York Times rarely runs stories that run counter to kind of their leftist narrative. The Washington Post actually does sometimes, uh, and, uh, and so I think it's a better outlet. Again, that's a quick and dirty rule of thumb. You know, Breitbart's never going to run anything that's counter to their in- interests. Infowars doesn't run stuff that's counter to their interests, and that's why those sites are, are less trustworthy. And the same thing holds true on the left. I don't trust Huffington Post because everything they run is, uh, is in the interest of their narrative. And one of the things we try to do at Daily Wire, and this is not, you know, a, this is not patting ourselves on the back, although it is, uh, is, uh, is that we try to have a, a variety of perspectives. So John Nolte, who's one of our editors at large, he and I disagree on virtually everything with regard to Donald Trump. We try to make room for that because we want opposing voice, uh, voices to be presented. In any case, the mainstream media haven't done this, and so they blew all their credibility. And here is a perfect example of how they blew all of their credibility. Uh, here's Brian Williams, who faked his own life story multiple times, right? He was in a helicopter in Iraq. He was almost shot down. He was watching bodies float by him during Hurricane Katrina. Uh, He was present at the storming of of the beaches at Normandy. Uh, He was actually on the original mission to to the moon. Uh, And uh, and now he's still on MSNBC, right? They brought him back on MSNBC after he was ousted from NBC Nightly News. Uh, And here he is decrying fake news. As we talked about here last night, fake news played a role in this election and continues to find a wide audience. A BuzzFeed news study of Donald Trump's own tweets, where they follow back news stories to their root source, found more of them came from Breitbart originally than from any other single source. And, of course, he's ripping on Breitbart as fake news. Now, as as a former employee of of Breitbart, I can say that not everything that Breitbart prints is fake news. The vast majority of what Breitbart does is aggregate. They actually just rewrite other people's stories a lot. Um, But, again, Brian Williams complaining about fake news is rather ironic. And what he doesn't note there is look at some of the other sources that, that Trump was tweeting during the campaign, right? Some of the other big sources, The Washington Post, right, FoxNews.com, The Hill, The New York Post, Daily Mail. He even tweeted The Huffington Post a few times. Right, so the idea that a National Review, which really didn't like him very much, the idea that, that all of the people who were tweeting were, were only tweeting from Breitbart, obviously that's the biggest circle there. And yes, I think Breitbart was a Trump Pravda outlet. But that doesn't mean that every headline that came from Breitbart is fake news, nor does it mean the entire outlet can simply be thrown out with the bathwater. You actually have to evaluate each story. And there are certain reporters at Breitbart who are really quite good. I think that Charlie Spearing is a good reporter over at Breitbart. I think Aaron Klein over at Breitbart Jerusalem is a very good reporter. I think Matt Boyle is not a very good reporter, but I think there are plenty of good reporters at Breitbart, uh, even though it's an outlet that I think is uh, overall just a shilling, shilling for Trump. But again, the left blew all of its credibility here, and so when they call, when they call foul here, when they scream about, about fake news, it just doesn't resonate. I mean, Hillary Clinton is doing the same routine. Now, instead of just recognizing you guys lost the election because you ran a bad candidate and she ran an abysmal campaign and you didn't understand what a lot of Americans were complaining about. Instead, you were too busy cutting videos with, you know, with uh, Mary J. Blige, in which she's singing to you questions. Instead of just recognizing that, they're trying to blame some out, outside source cheating, whether it's the Russians cheating or whether, it is, whether it's fake news. Here's Hillary Clinton's crying fake news. The epidemic of malicious fake news and false propaganda that flooded social media over the past year, it's now clear that 
so-called fake news can have real-world consequences. This isn't about politics or partisanship. Lives are at risk. Lives of ordinary people just trying to go about their days to do their jobs, contribute to their communities. It's a danger to be addressed and addressed quickly. Bipartisan legislation is making its way through Congress to boost the government's response to foreign propaganda, and Silicon Valley is starting to grapple with the challenge and threat of fake news. Who's going to determine what's fake news and what's not fake news? That's really the biggest question. Now, some stuff, I do want to avoid the tendency to say nothing is fake news because the media overlabel things fake news. There are things that are fake news. There are things that are fake news. Here she's saying Pizzagate is fake news, and that's what drove this guy over to this pizzeria to try and shoot it up. The problem is, the problem is that if you are going to, if you are going to, uh, you know, label everything fake news from Pizzagate to to Benghazi, right? And, and you remember how the media downplayed Benghazi? They said there was nothing to see there. There certainly was something to see there. You know, the the fact that they they conflated all of that destroyed their own credibility. And so when Hillary Clinton is standing there decrying fake news, it's like, wait a second, why you don't get to do this? My, Mika Brzezinski, who's another one of these these you know, kind of dicey reporters over on MSNBC. Uh, she's on Morning Joe. She's She says, you know, Hillary can complain about fake news. Hillary complains about fake news. And then Mika this morning, she says, you know, Hillary tried to get me thrown off air for simply saying that this was a competitive race. I was concerned the campaign was not understanding that uh, perhaps there was an arrogance they needed to sort of get up their high horse and understand that this isn't over. I'll just say it. NBC got a call from the campaign. Like, I had had done something that was journalistically inappropriate or something and needed to be pulled off the air. Mm. I mean, think about that. Yeah. That's just... That's crazy. That's shooting the wrong messenger. Okay, and, you know, the, the fact that... Hillary Clinton is saying fake news this, fake news that, and then she tried to have a reporter pulled off the air, supposedly, because that reporter uh, was was saying that this was a more competitive race. It just demonstrates how silly all of this is. Hil- Again, Hillary Clinton has no credibility to call out fake news because Hillary Clinton is the propagator of fake news. I mean, you remember that Hillary Clinton once claimed that her husband, all, all of the all of the circumstances surrounding her husband and Lewinsky, all of it was lies. It was all just vast right-wing propaganda. The great story here for anybody willing to find it and write about it and explain it is this vast right-wing conspiracy that has been conspiring against my husband since the day he announced for president. Okay, and, and so she's been singing the same tune for 30 years. Democrats always sing the same tune when they lose. It must be that somebody lied about us. It can't be that somebody told the truth about us. The truth is, virtually all of the anti-Hillary stories were true. Virtually all the anti-Trump stories were true. Virtually none of the pro-Trump or pro-Hillary stories were true. That was sort of the, the theme of the campaign as we were pointing it out. Plus, again, Hillary Clinton, I say she's the purveyor of lies. I mean, here's just a few of her whoppers. And this, is, this was, uh, you can find these, these lies on, on YouTube. They are going to people showing videos of Donald Trump insulting Islam and Muslims in order to recruit more radical jihadists. In fact, checkers have said that she was wrong. There is no video that ISIS is using. Oh, and it seems like there's a pattern now of her claiming that videos exist that do not exist. I remember landing under sniper fire. There was supposed to be some kind of a greeting ceremony at the airport, but instead we just ran with our heads down to get into the vehicles uh, to get to our base. Her arrival in Bosnia was not quite as dramatic as Clinton put it. Memory should always match the videotape. And family members of the Benghazi victims are saying you lied to them in that uh, hearing. We've seen rage and violence directed at American embassies over an awful internet video that we had nothing to do with. Absolutely lying. She told me something entirely different at the casket ceremony. She said it was the cause of the, the, the video and that she would get back to me and... Okay, so that's just an example of some of the lies that Hillary Clinton was telling, and there she is decrying fake news and talking about how terrible it is. Very difficult to take the Democrats seriously and the media seriously when they've blown their own credibility, which means that Trump basically has free reign. He basically has run of the place. He has run of the place. And that's either a good thing or that's a bad thing. And we'll talk about that. Uh, you have to go over to Daily Wire to subscribe because we're going to talk about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing and uh, and what comes next here. DailyWire.com to subscribe, $8 a month. And if you want an annual subscription, that, that will run you still $8 a month. But you get a, but you get, uh, you get a copy of my, uh, of my new novel, True Allegiance, autographed. I'm going to go sign a bunch in the other room. Uh, and, uh, and 
you can be part of the uh, you can be part of our podcast team. Uh, the mailbag is coming up today. You get to be part of the mailbag. We'll do li- some live mailbag today, which means we'll take your questions live on air, which is pretty exciting. And we have plenty of goodies coming. Shapiro store is coming. Lots of we're going to be rolling out lots of product in the new year, uh, and uh, you get significant discounts on all of that by becoming a subscriber over at DailyWire.com. We are the largest conservative podcast in the United States. Okay, so the good news about the media having discredited themselves is that the media were lying in the first place, so it's good they've been discredited. Uh, the good news about the Democrats discrediting themselves is that the Democrats lie consistently, so that's a good thing. The bad news is that there are not a lot of checks left on abusive power or overstepping of conservative boundaries by a Republican. And that, that is actually a problem. You know, the same way that we complained about there being sort of a monopolistic feeling about the Obama administration, that nobody was checking him, the media weren't checking him, Democrats weren't checking him, Republicans weren't checking him. You're getting the same feel about Donald Trump right now. So Paul Ryan, who's the Speaker of the House, he goes and he visits with Donald Trump. And obviously, look, it's, it's, it's still really early. I understand. Everybody is going to be speaking in, in rose-hued tones, in gilded tones about the wonders of, of President-elect Trump. Now here is Paul Ryan, who has some pretty significant policy differences with Donald Trump, uh, coming down from atop Trump Tower uh, to speak to the people. Uh, about about what happened during this meeting. Uh, I really enjoyed coming up here and meeting with the president-elect. We had a great meeting to talk about our transition. We're very excited about getting to work and hitting the ground running in 2017 to put this country back on track. Okay, Thanks, guys. So very, very exciting stuff, right? Very exciting. You think Paul Ryan is going to check Trump if he goes off the rails? Do you think he will? I don't. And, and I don't think that the, the so-called conservative media will either. I think there are very few people in conservative media who are willing to call out stuff when they see that it's wrong. I think the carrier deal is a pretty good litmus test for that. Most of the major players in conservative media have been praising it as just wondrous example of God King Trump doing wonderful work, as opposed to, um, guys, we didn't think it was good when Obama did it. Right? Here's an example. George Will, who, uh, who was very critical of Trump during the general election and the primaries, here's George Will, what he had to say about the carrier deal, which, as you know, I don't have to reiterate, I think is, is a terrible deal. I think it has nothing to do with conservatism. I think it's anti-conservative. Here's what George Will had to say about the carrier deal. So far, Donald Trump's style is personal, not to say visceral, and ad hoc. And what that adds up to is a, is a kind of use of presidential power absolutely unconstrained by law and statute and all those other niceties. The problem is when you have, in the carrier case, political power used to bring pressure upon a privately held corporation that has a fiduciary duty to maximize shareholder value and drive them off with political pressure from making economic decisions about economic assets, you are in effect at the end of the day getting the federal government involved in capital allocation. There's a name for that. It's called socialism. And so uh, to the existing indictments of Donald Trump in the public imagination, at least where the Democrats are concerned, we have fascist, right? We have uh, uber capitalist and now we add to that socialist. Correct. They can't all logically coexist. This is not a logical time. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, and and what he's saying there is essentially true. It's not, by the way, fascist and socialist certainly can coexist. Most of the fascist countries in world history have been socialist. Um, But here's the reaction, right? So here's Bill O'Reilly last night on Fox News, and he's going after George Will. And look at the the, the way he goes after Will. It's really fascinating. Case in point, conservative George Will, Washington Post columnist who also provides analysis for Fox News. Will despises Trump, feels that he is an intellectual inferior, and even left Will did the Republican Party because of Trump's nomination. Now, certainly George Will's right as both an American and a analyst to criticize not only Donald Trump, but any powerful person he wants. We have no beef with that. What is troubling, however, is that much of Will's negative analysis is driven by personal animus. And it is here that he does his readers and viewers a great disservice. Okay, really? That's what that's the game we're going to play? I remember when Bill O'Reilly, earlier in this election cycle, was having Donald Trump on, and they were talking about how they used to share milkshakes. You remember that? It was really funny. And to, but, but now it's, it's that Will, Will's analysis has to be thrown out because you think he has animus? I hate this game, by the way. I think this game is stupid. How about you analyze what he said, not your feeling about his motivation for having said it? I think this is one of the dumber things in politics we do, where we say, well, you know, the person may be saying something true, but it's really the motivation that bugs me. It's like, what, I'm sorry, what are you, my wife? Like, if I say something, like, like really, every, everybody who's in a relationship has this experience at one time or another, where you're talking to your spouse, you're talking to your significant other, and you say something that's true, and your significant other says, I can't believe you just said that to me. You say, right, but it, it's true what I just said. I said, yeah, but it's the way you said it. It's the way you said it. 
Okay, well, I guess at least in a personal relationship, you can use the excuse that the way you said it matters since you're supposed to love each other, presumably. But your feelings about a politician don't matter when it comes to whether what you're saying is true or not. And you notice how it just he, – he's basically saying he's not sufficiently – Will is not sufficiently loyal to, to Donald Trump. I mean, what O'Reilly actually says right there, he says, Will is undermining Trump. There are people who are dedicated to undermining Trump. How about this? Was it true or was it not true what he said? But Republicans are no longer operating in the realm of truth or untruth. They're simply operating in the realm of we can't undermine our man. Now, here's the problem. You could have made that argument during the election. A lot of people did. I didn't think it was a particularly good argument because my argument was it's not my job to, to boost Trump. It's his job to do things that make me want to boost him, right? I mean, it's his job to, to please me. It's not my job to please him. I don't owe my allegiance to him. He owes his allegiance to the American people and presumably to principles that I like if he wants me to vote for him. But at least that was an argument. At least the argument was, I don't think it was a good one, but the argument was don't undermine what Trump is doing during the election cycle because you'll help Hillary just by necessity. Okay, Again, not my job to help Trump, not my job to boost Hillary, my job to tell the truth. But at least that's an argument. Now, Hillary's not part of this anymore, right? Hillary's gone. Hillary is, is off whining about fake news somewhere and while, while dodging sniper fire in Bosnia. And yet you're still seeing the same people say the same things, right? You're still seeing George Will say, how dare, you're still seeing O'Reilly say, how dare George Will undermine Trump? Undermine Trump? He's the president-elect. George Will can't do anything about that. George Will knows he can't do anything about that. How's he undermining him? Is he making him less electable? The election just happened. Is he making him more impeachable? There's, no, there's not even talk about impeachment, nor should there be. It's just, it's, it's really, it's sort of devastating to watch as people fall into line because it turns into a test of loyalty to the man rather than test of loyalty to the principal. And a lot of Republicans are falling into this too. So Politico is reporting today that a lot of Republicans are actually quite unhappy with Donald Trump's carrier deal and his infrastructure plan, a lot of House Republicans. But here's what they report, quote, The irony expressed privately by lawmakers and leadership aides is glaring. Privately, House Republicans complain that Trump's infrastructure plan reeks of Obama's stimulus package. Though some argue that Trump, unlike Obama, is likely to rely on public-private partnerships, not just federal dollars, and is likely to be paid for. They say his tariff proposal is ridiculous, and using the White House to force companies to stay in the U.S. is inappropriate. Many are afraid to publicly oppose Trump because of his fondness for retribution and use of Twitter to publicly shame his critics. So now they're left crossing their fingers that his rhetoric doesn't translate into actual policy proposals next year. Mark Sanford, Republican of South Carolina, says sometimes it's the pioneers that end up with the arrows in their backs. In other words, well, why don't you be the pioneer then, dude? I mean, like this idea that it's, it's a political risk to take on Trump. Yes, but you weren't elected to not take on Trump. You weren't elected to, to, you weren't elected to just kowtow and then cross your fingers. Like, it's a co-equal branch. Congress is a co-equal branch of the presidency. No one elected you to cross your fingers and hope. They elected you presumably to represent their interests and to stand up when you think something is wrong. But very few people are going to do this. And Trump is, is creating a feeling among Republicans like he's going to face stomp you if, he, if, if you cross him. And that, that was something that happened, by the way. That's not unique to, to now. That's something that certainly happened during the primaries and during the general. This feeling that if you, if you cross Trump, then you'll be run over by the Trump train. And that's not ending now. And now he's got the power of the White House behind him. So he's made politics quite personal. And that's scary for a lot of people. And, and the kind of language he's using should not be should not be friendly. It was very funny. Trump said this, I guess it was two days ago, he said, quote, I want a list of companies that are leaving. I can call them myself. They won't be leaving. If Barack Obama had said that, you'd be saying, wow, that's some fascist language right there. Here's what he actually said. He said, hey, Reince, I want to get a list of companies that have announced they're leaving. I can call them myself. Five minutes apiece. They won't be leaving. Okay. That's really what he said. He said this during his speech. Okay. He said that he would call them himself in five minutes. They wouldn't be leaving. What do you think he does in that five minutes? Do you think he gets on the phone and he says, let me present to you my wonderful economic proposals that will drive you to make an independent decision not to relocate your employment? Or do you think he gets on the phone and he says, we have lots of contracts here. Your name's on them. We also have the power of the IRS. We also have the power of the FEC. The, the FEC. We can come, we can, the SEC, we can come, we can come, we can do whatever we want to. Again, this is the kind of stuff where Republicans used to stand up, but they don't anymore. It was actually kind of funny. This morning, uh, I was doing um, the, the other radio show that I do, which is this group show in the mornings here in Los Angeles, uh, which is a, a lefty uh, and me, and then uh, Alicia Krauss, who agrees with my positions on a lot of stuff. Uh, we, we tend to be in line, and, uh, and Jen Horn, a wonderful gal, but she's very, and, and very, very pro-Trump. There's no but, and very, very pro-Trump. And, uh, and so we're talking about this, and we took a poll of the room. How many people here voted for Trump? We were doing a live broadcast somewhere. The entire room cheers. Okay, everybody voted for Trump, which is fine. 
How many of you are cool with the carrier deal? How many of you think it's good that he's calling up companies personally? And everybody in the room claps. And I said, okay, now how many of you would have been okay with Obama calling up companies personally? Nobody claps. And I said, well, that seems like a lack of principle. That, that just seems like you're shifting your principles to meet the guy. Like you're okay with fascism so long as the fascist is on your side. And, uh, and Jen said, so you're calling all these people lacking in principle? I said, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what's happening here. <laughs> um, but it's, it's true. There's no other way to see that. Again, if I read that quote to you again, and it's Obama, right? If I read you that quote, and now it's not Trump saying it, now it's Obama saying it, and it's, hey, Valerie, I want to get a list of companies that have announced they're leaving. I can call them myself. Five minutes apiece. They won't be leaving, okay? <laughs> right? Suddenly, you're feeling a little more angry, aren't you? Well, again, that, that means that we, we ought to be looking more closely at what he's doing. Now, I will say there are some things that are, that are quite thrilling about Trump. And one of them is not what Harry Reid said. Harry Reid, who's legitimately one of the worst people on earth, uh, Reid came out yesterday and he said he's been pleasantly surprised by Trump, which, by the way, is an indicator you probably shouldn't be pleasantly surprised by Trump. If you agree with Harry Reid, that's a problem. Well, I have to say this. He's not as bad as I thought he would be. Uh, some of his cabinet selections I'm not wild about because I'm not going to be able to vote on them. I've been very careful in not criticizing them individually. Where has he impressed you then? Where has he been not so bad? How about dreamers? You know, he was going to deport all the dreamers. That's 800,000 young men and women who came here uh, when they were little kids. So the president issued an executive order. And we heard from Trump that first, one of the first things he was going to do is repeal that executive order. In an interview we had with Time Magazine the last day or two, he said, no, I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Those young people deserve to stay here. He's not. And it's true. Reid has a lot of reasons to be pleased. Trump's sounding a lot like a, like a, a moderate Democrat in, in some of the policies he's pursuing. Today, for example, he nominated as head of his National Economic Advisory Council the head of Goldman Sachs. You remember when, uh, you, you remember when that was bad? You remember when that was bad? Remember when Katrina Pearson was saying this about Heidi Cruz during the campaign? Spilling the beans is quite simple when it comes to Heidi Cruz. She is a Bush operative. Uh, she worked for the architect of NAFTA, which has killed millions of jobs in this country. She was a member of the Council on Foreign Relations, who, in Senator Cruz's own words, called a nest of snakes that seeks to undermine national sovereignty. And she's a member. She's been working for Goldman Sachs, the same global bank that Ted Cruz left off of his financial disclosure, and, and who also has chairman on the board of the Federal Reserve, which is something that Senator Cruz promised to, uh, to audit the Fed and didn't show up for the vote. So spilling the beans on Heidi Cruz simply means that her entire career has been spent working against everything Ted Cruz says that he stands for. Oh, Goldman Sachs, Goldman Sachs. Here's what Trump had to tweet about Goldman Sachs earlier this year, just to remind you. Here are some of Trump's tweets. Is Cruz honest? He's in bed with Wall Street and is funded by Goldman Sachs. Low interest loans, no legal disclosure, never sold off assets. And he also tweeted... Uh, he also tweeted some more about Goldman Sachs. He's tweeted many times about Goldman Sachs, how corrupt they are. Now he's got three separate Goldman Sachs staffers in his administration, all of which suggest that a lot of the drain the swamp talk uh, was, was not true. Now, there was one thing I think that Trump said that he deserves praise for, and this is one thing that I actually do like about Trump, and that is uh, that Trump uh, does – he's not ashamed of his wealth, and that's something that I do like. Uh, I think he's too ostentatious about it, and I, th I, I don't think that's particularly classy, but – He's not ashamed of it. When he's asked about his wealth, he's yeah, of course I'm wealthy. I like that. There are a lot of people who are getting all uptight for no reason about the fact that there are a lot of rich people in his cabinet. Uh, welcome to the world of politics where there are a lot of rich people. Here is what Trump had to say about having a lot of people in his cabinet who are very wealthy. Some of the people I put on to negotiate, you've been noticing, are some of the most successful people in the world. And one newspaper criticized me. Why can't they have people of modest means? Because I want people that made a fortune. Because now they're negotiating with you, okay? It's no different than a great baseball player or a great golfer. I mean, we want the people that are going to bring, and they're so proud to do it. These people have given up fortunes of income in order to make a dollar a year. And they're so proud to do it. And you watch, you watch what's going to happen. It's going to happen fast, too.
Gonna happen fast. Okay, I like that. You know, that's, that's when he says that he's not ashamed of having rich people surrounding him. I'm, I'm not ashamed of that either. I just think that he should be a little ashamed of the fact that he told all of his people Goldman Sachs was the devil, and then half of Goldman Sachs' upper echelon staff is working for him now. That's a little bit weird. All of this actually leads to uh, a point that needs to be made about the Democrats and what I don't want to give Democrats advice here, but this is necessary for analysis. And that is there's a split in the Democratic Party about what they should do now. And on the one hand, you have Joe Biden. And on the other hand, you have Nancy Pelosi. So Joe Biden says, we got to go back after this white working class, blue collar crowd, the people who we lost in 2012, the people we started to, to lose in 2008. If we had all of the white working class voters from Clinton and we had Obama's coalition, we'd have 60 percent of the vote. Here's what Joe Biden had to say about the white working class. One leading Democrat said, Bob, for every vote Biden's going to go out there and get some white guy to vote, I'll get two educated women to vote Democrat. We don't need there, there, there's this sort of sense that's grown up in the Democratic Party that somehow these folks are, are uh, I mean, these are good people, man. These aren't racist. These aren't sexist. Here's the thing. I've never found, Jake, any difference between the progressive views I have, and I challenge anybody to have a more progressive record than I have on race, women, LGBT, whatever, and union halls. I'd go and do these events in Youngstown. I'd stand up there. You may have covered some of them. And I'd say, we need equal pay for women. And they'd all cheer because guess what? Their wives work. Their wives work. And they know their standard of living is diminished. I'd stand up and say, look, we have to, we have to stop the violence on college campuses. And we have to make men stand up and take responsibility. These guys, they cheered. But there's a sense in some of our party that, wait a minute, we either have to be tone down our progressive point of view and ramp up what we're going to do for working folks or somehow talk less about working folks and ramp. It, it, there, there is no conflict in the neighborhoods I come from. None. Okay, what None Joe Biden all. is doing here is smart, right? What he's trying to say is I need to work, reach out to these white working class folks and my progressive agenda doesn't have to be compromised to do that. This is actually quite smart, which is unique from Joe Biden. And then there's Nancy Pelosi's take. And Nancy Pelosi's take is that she's going to just continue to run against Donald Trump on the basis of sort of what she thinks is, is her agenda. Now, what's funny about it here is that she, she actually is saying something true uh, about Trump's tariff proposal, but it's not smart politics. Here's what she says. We live in a global economy. Uh, any initiatives that we take uh, in terms of trade have a consequence for us. Uh, the, the idea that we were going to go down that path, it doesn't seem well thought out. Uh, it doesn't look like a formula for success, and it certainly will invite reciprocity. And what we want to do is to promote our exports, not to have them uh, tariffed highly in, in other countries. So I, I think this is more of a PR thing because it doesn't really sound like a serious uh, proposal in terms of, of trade. But it gets, a, it gets an applause. You know, and, and what she's saying here actually is, is economically true, which is amazing that a socialist sometimes stumbles on it, even if just out of opposition to Trump. Obviously, if Bernie Sanders were proposing the same thing, she'd be all for it. But what's, but what's amazing here is that the Democrats do have an opportunity. Here is their opportunity. Their opportunity is Donald Trump is basically Herbert Hoover. Okay, Herbert Hoover was not a hardcore Republican. He was seen as somebody who was very conservative. And after he left the presidency, he was president from 1928 to 1932. After he left the presidency, he wrote this series of pamphlets and books about what it meant to be a conservative. None of those pamphlets and books actually summed up what he did when he was president. When he was president, he raised tariffs. When he was president, he raised taxes. When he was president, he blew out spending. Okay, he, he, he did all of the things that, that FDR did. He just did them at about half ebb, maybe a quarter ebb. And then FDR came along. And FDR campaigned against the waste and fraud of Hoover. And he also said that he was going to add to the social, to, to sort of the, the socialist inklings, the socialist moves that Hoover had made. So he comes along, he doubles down on everything that Hoover does. He, he increases everything. He, he gets more involved in the economy. Uh, he blows out the spending to a var, far vaster extent. He adds to the administrative state. He creates the New Deal. He bullies companies. But all of that was started by Hoover. And so what FDR did is he comes along and he says, yeah, Hoover failed. But the reason Hoover failed is because we need to do three times as much as what Hoover was doing. Look at that crazy conservative not doing that much. The Democrats could do that with Trump because Trump is actually embracing policies now that are not good policies, but that give a moral credence to Democrats. 
right? They're policies that don't work. It's sort of the best of both worlds for Democrats. The policies are not geared toward working on a broad level. I'm sorry, you can't call up a bajillion businesses in the United States and convince them to stay by either bribing them or leveraging them. That destroys the economy. It does. It destroys it because, number one, you can't bribe everybody. And number two, if you leverage everybody, they're simply going to move offshore at a certain point. And then if you don't want them to move offshore, you have to tariff all the goods coming into the country, raising prices by the amount that you tariff them. But that's what Trump is going to pursue. What Democrats could do is they could say, look at Donald Trump. He doesn't know what the hell he's doing, but you sort of like what he's talking about, don't you? You like the idea that he's going to protect American business. You like the idea that he's going to leverage them, that he's going to strong arm them, that he's going to bribe them and wheedle them. You kind of like that stuff, don't you? We'll do that 10 times as much. And the reason he's failed is because he hasn't done more of that. You could end up very easily with a Herbert Hoover scenario. You could end up with a Herbert Hoover scenario, 1928 to 1932, followed by four consecutive Democratic terms. And uh, that, that is not out of the realm of possibilities if, de- if Democrats were smart. But Democrats are actually quite stupid. So remember, by the way, that Republicans held the Senate majority in 1929. They held the House majority in 1929. Uh, and by 1932, the entire country was in the hands of FDR. And that was his direct response to the fact that Herbert Hoover governed like FDR light. Governed like FDR light. In 1930, by the way, that, that Congress was all Republican. Senate majority Republican, House majority Republican. By 1932, everything had swiveled, and, uh, and now FDR was in control. Suddenly, FDR was in control. Suddenly, the, the Republicans maintained a slight majority in the Senate. They lost the House. You could certainly see something like that happening simply if the Democrats doubled down on the logical reasons behind Trumpism, but then said, we're going to blow it out, and that's the reason that Trump has failed. Uh, that's, that, that's what happens if Trump pursues bad policy. So, you know, in the best of all possible worlds, Trump pursues really good policy. In the best of all possible worlds, all of this is sort of just to generate headlines, and then underneath it, he's pursuing good policy that makes everybody prosperous. So he's got both, right? He's, he's got kind of the, the nasty political maneuvering that he's doing right now for good headlines from the left, but he's simultaneously making the economy better, and he's lowering the tax rate, and he's lowering the regulations, and he's not setting up tariffs. He's actually making trade easier. That would be the best of all possible worlds. If he doesn't do that, then he's opening himself up for a, a whopping, whopping Democratic lashback, and, uh, and everybody should just recognize that, because there is a history behind this. Okay, time for some stuff I like, things I hate, and then we'll get to the mailbag. So, stuff I like. Uh, I've been watching the, the Netflix series Narcos. Uh, it is really, really good. So, obviously, not for the kid. He's all about drugs and sex, but, uh, but it, is a, it, it traces the rise and fall of Pablo Escobar. Uh, who was one of the most notorious criminals of the latter half of the 20th century, uh, the, the Colombian drug dealer who was responsible for literally thousands of deaths. Uh, here, is, here is Pablo Escobar, and here, here's a bit of the trailer for Narcos. Imagine you were born in a poor family, in a poor country, and by the time you were 28 years old, you have so much money you can't even count it. Señores, yo soy Pablo Emilio Escobar Gaviria. Haciendo negocios, así que pues fresco. Ustedes eligen plata o plomo. This is him threatening guards. Here they're going to get silver get away. Myself. I'm Steve Murphy, drug enforcement agent. In 79, the bad guys I was chasing were flip-flops. Oh, you running, huh? What you got? What is that? When I started, a one kilo grass bust was cause for celebration. Before long, we were seizing 60 kilos of coke a day. The hippies had been replaced by Colombians, and these guys didn't wear flip-flops. Okay, so actually really good. It's, it's pretty historically accurate. Um, I'm almost through season one, uh, and, it's, and it's very solid. It's a very, very solid series. Uh, enjoying, enjoying that. Um, okay, uh, other things that I like. There's this. I have to mention this. It's, it's again not for kiddies, but it is hysterical and wonderful. And that is, there's this, <laughs> there's this guy named Drew McGarry. I don't know who he is, um, but he he wrote something for Deadspin. Uh, it's called. It's at adequateman.deadspin.com. The 2016 Haters Guide to the William Sonoma Catalog. It is spectacular. He goes through all of the pretentious nonsense in the Williams Sonoma catalog, and uh, it's it's really funny. Like the, he he shows a picture of a of what looks like a polished nickel finish aluminum and stainless steel antler that you put on your table to hold candles for the holidays, and then he writes. Copy, sculptural antler-inspired pieces in polished nickel-finished aluminum and stainless steel. I'm cleaning this up for for reading. 
That's 160 bucks to stick a freaking antler in the center of your table, like a deer ran into your home and hit under your dining table, and then heard a frightening noise and then jumped up and impaled his stupid antler in your table. Festive. Anyway, if I'm putting any antlers on the table, they're going to be real. None of these poser antlers for me. I'm taking down Bambi's mom and then making her head the centerpiece of my turkey dinner. Eat up, children. Don't mind the deer head looking into your soul. <laughs> it's 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 a it's it's a fantastic piece. Some of it's really funny. He gets to they're, they're, my personal favorite uh, is there's a there's one point where he shows uh, these these Nordic wear Star of David bunt cake pans, uh, and it's it's a cake pan in the shape of a Star of David. It says turns turns out a lofty cake with crisply defined edges, and he says thirty seven bucks. What kind of shady globalist cabal set that price? Also, that cake pan is clearly in the shape of a sheriff's badge. <laughs> Clear as day, folks. I love that there's a segregated Hanukkah section of the catalog every year. Just round up all the Jewish gifts and place them in their own spot, eh? Pretty problematic, in my humble opinion. <laughs> Pretty spectacular. <laughs> so, oh, goodness. So check that out if you're looking for a laugh. It's really, really funny. Okay, uh, now time for some things that I hate. So let's say that you want to take your kid to a story hour. You're going to go to a bookstore and they're going to read books to your children. Maybe they're going to read fairy tales or perhaps they're going to read them stories from the Bible. Or I guess if you live in New York at the Brooklyn Public Library, they can introduce you to drag queen stories for your small child. But Marissa Meltzer at New Yorker. Only the New Yorker would find this charming and and lovely, especially since uh, I would say the the population of the New Yorker on average have 0.3 children. Like, they, they, honestly, the subscribers of The New Yorker, they may have 1.5 children at most, but more likely 0.3. It's a bunch of older ladies like my grandma who subscribe to The New Yorker uh, and think that it's absolutely charming to read to small children about drag queens. Marissa Meltzer writes, On a recent Saturday morning, about two dozen small children and their parents gathered in the Park Slope branch of the Brooklyn Public Library for a new reading series. Nothing I like better than publicly sponsored ridiculousness. These, there were pregnant women with tattoos, breastfeeding moms, and a little girl in a pink ballerina gear climbing up on the laps of her two dads. Ah, uh, Many of the kids, who ranged in age from newborn to five years old, wore tiny t-shirts showcasing their parents' favorite brands, Nirvana, David Bowie, or political views. One read, the future is female. By the way, if you get your kid a shirt, and your kid's like three, that says the future is female, you're a terrible person. Like, just, just putting it out there, you shouldn't have political views on the t-shirts of your children. It's just, it's obnoxious. You want to advertise? Don't use your kid as a billboard. Don't use your, your kid as a billboard for your political views. It's, it's ridiculous. The event was hosted by, and I'm speaking as somebody who has two kids under three. The event was hosted by Michelle T., a writer from Los Angeles, who started attending Library Story hours after becoming a mom. Storytime rises or falls on the charisma of the storyteller, she said. T's solution, I love this, is she brought her partner, Dashiell Lipman, and their two-year-old son, Atticus, who had a haircut that resembled David Beckham's. He's pretty butch. We call him Fraticus, he said. I'm always pushing a tutu on him, but he's like, no. Why are you pushing a tutu on your male child? Are you itching for gender confusion and upset? Is that something that you want? It's one thing, I mean, honestly, like, there's controversy over whether if your kid wants to wear a tutu and he's a boy, you should do that or not. I wouldn't do that for my son because I think it's important to reinforce gender roles. But the idea that you're deliberately going out of your way to slap a tutu on your two-year-old because you want him to be confused is just disgusting. I mean, talk about putting your own political priorities ahead of the mental well-being and, and, and psychological well-being of your child. I'm, I'm still awaiting the, the study that demonstrates that gender confusion is a great thing for children to have. That that's actually helpful. T's solution, called Drag Queen Story Hour, introduces elements of gender bending in camp. I've long thought drag queens need to be the performers at children's parties rather than magicians or clowns. Drag has become more mainstream. Kids might have seen one on a billboard or on TV. Unlikely, unless you're a terrible parent, that you point that out to your three-year-old. I mean, seriously, you're going you're gonna to encourage gender confusion in children. You know, all of this derives from this idea. It's that there's this conflicting idea among so many people on the left, and it really is self-contradictory, that sexuality is completely malleable, but sexual orientation is completely fixed. It's, it's bizarre world. That your desires are completely fixed by biology. The evidence is not there for that. Okay, men tend to be binary in terms of sexual orientation. Women tend to be more fluid, but there is gradation. And the, and the behavior is entirely malleable. You know, as it, that, that straight men can just have sex with, with other men and no big deal. And, and that 
and that you, you don't have to that gender is not defined as sex sex and gender have no relationship to one another uh, that they that they can be completely separated and that all we have to do is just beat out of our young sons the idea that men are men and women are women and suddenly we'll have a better world because everybody will be genderless androgynous widgets it's stupidity and it hurts children again find me the three-year-old who is gender confused and is better off for being gender confused find it for one one show me the one who's, who's show me the person Who's, had a, who's better off for being gender confused. I'm not saying that people choose to be gender confused. I'm saying that if you are cursed with gender confusion, that's a difficult cross to bear. I mean, that's, that, that makes your life harder. It doesn't make your life easier. Deliberately going out of your way to take a healthy child and introduce gender confusion to a healthy child for no apparent reason other than your perverse view of the universe that is unbacked by scientific evidence it's putting politics above the welfare of your kid, and it's really and it's really disgusting. Okay, other things that I dislike, aside from drag queen shows for three year olds at the public library. Goodness gracious, uh, Trevor Noah. Uh, I could do this literally every day. It's just a Trevor Noah bit that I think is terrible because Trevor Noah, as we've established now, there there's been a, a long race between Lena Dunham, Trevor Noah, Amy Schumer, and Samantha Bee. It's like the the final four of of comedy cancer, uh, and eventually everyone dies. Uh, but Trevor Noah. Uh, has a, he did a bit on the Electoral College, and he had Thomas Jefferson show up to explain it. I don't know about you, but whenever I'm in a constitutional crisis, I open up my favorite app. It's called Founding Father. <laughs> Let's hold on. There we go. Who summons me from ye old store made of apps? Thomas Jefferson, this is Trevor Noah. I have a question. Oh, okay, I, I know what you're going to say. Yes, chances are you are descended from me. <laughs> but all the money's gone. No, 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 no uh, Mr. Jefferson, it's not about that. It's about the Electoral College. Oh. Why does America need electors to pick a president? Why not just trust the popular vote? <laughs> Trust the popular vote. <laughs> what a good joke. Now I see why this show does so well with millennials. <laughs> you see, Trevor, in my day, we didn't tally a popular vote for president. We believed the common people were ill-informed and couldn't be relied on to reject a populist demagogue. So we devised electors to ensure that America would never elect a dangerous, charismatic lunatic. What? Well, actually, I, I don't know if that worked out, you see, because the Electoral College, uh, America's uh, handing the White House, because of them, uh, to a racist white guy instead of a more popular, more qualified woman. Sounds like it's working perfectly. What's the problem? <laughs> well, well, I get in your day, but look, the thing is, it distorts the vote. Uh, voters don't get the power they should, and the candidates totally ignore everyone outside a few swing states. It's not a true sorry, democracy. it's unwatchable. I can't watch it. It's so terrible. Like, even his audience is, at this point... They're committing suicide in their seats at this point. They're searching the la- they're, they're searching the coke the coke machine for bottles of lye that they can down. They're, they've they've started ransacking the the kitchen at the Daily Show headquarters uh, in search of bottles of Drano. It's so bad. It's so bad. There there are a variety of reasons why the electoral college exists. Yes, one of the reasons the electoral college exists was to provide a check against the against demagoguery. But one of the reasons that you have a rise in demagoguery is the is the increasing popular vote. That, that has taken place in the country. And I don't mean just the number of people who are voting. I also mean the fact that we've changed the system. It used to be that the Senate was selected by Senate legislators, as a, a, by the individual state legislators, as opposed to being directly elected. Uh, and, and that has led to the rise of demagog- demagogues in the Senate. Uh, that's made people more accustomed to political demagoguery, the rise of television. But that's not the only reason for the Electoral College. I mean, it was also a compromise because there were a lot of smaller states that said, we don't want to get into a system where our interests are run roughshod over by a president who's elected by all of the populations in the more populous states. So, you know, to to, to ignore that is silly. But taking this seriously is even the silliest thing because, I mean, honestly, just as a comedic thing, at some point he should try to be funny. It It might be worthwhile. Okay, time for a few entries from the mailbag. Here we go. Christopher writes, Ben, jobs are getting replaced with high-tech robots ever more increasingly. What are your thoughts on eventually needing to have a universal income because there simply are no jobs? This is a great question, and it was something that I was thinking about a lot today because uh, the fact is that high-tech robots are going to take over an enormous number of industries, 
And the question is going to become, what happens to people who can't actually adapt? What happens to people who are incapable of having uh, income in order to buy all of these things? Well, one of the things that happens when you have robotics that take over is that you can produce a lot of products very, very cheaply. So the prices go down. You don't have to have a really great job in order to support a good lifestyle. Actually, today's economy is a good example of this. If you are earning thirteen, fifteen an hour, 15 bucks an hour, you still have the top-of-the-line top technology, right? You still have a TV at home. You still have a car in all likelihood. You still have a microwave. You still have a toaster. That stuff's going to get better and more plentiful. So the idea that you need a universal basic income because unemployment is going to be universal is wrong. I think that there are going to be a lot of jobs created in areas that we haven't thought of simply because there is still an element of human labor that's necessary even in high tech. Now, is it going to be an increasing problem? Yes, it's going to be an increasing. There, there is going to be a gap between people who are in the more creative areas of life and people who are in the more mechanistic areas of life. Uh, there will be new jobs created in different areas. The idea of universal basic income, by the way, was supported by people like Milton Friedman, who foresaw the possibility that there would be vast swaths of the of the country that were unable to support themselves. I'm split on it. I don't like the idea of a universal basic income on principle because I think the idea of a universal basic income eventually leads to people saying, okay, I want more universal basic income. I want more universal basic income. You have basically a group of people who are living off the public dole, and that number is increasing over time as technology gets better, and then they're stumping for more, and then eventually you end up with a, and then you eventually end up with a frozen economy because all of the resources are redistributed. What you have to understand about economics is that when you redistribute resources, you're basically freezing the economy in place. You're, you're assuming that the economy is as good as it's going to get. In a utopian world in which machines were generating everything, in a utopian world in which machines held all the jobs, you would need some form of universal basic income because the fact is that there would be no more technology to be developed. Everybody would have all the things they need, and then the only question is, Okay, how do we make sure everybody has an equal share, or not an equal share, at least a portion of this prosperity? But there's always progress to be had, or at least there has been historically. When we reach the point of utopia, where everything can be developed very quickly, very cheaply for everyone, and there's no question of scarcity. If the, there's, the Scarcity is what creates the supply and demand curve. If there's no question of scarcity then universal basic income might be something that's worth looking at. But as long as there's scarcity in the marketplace, universal basic income undercuts the, the actual interest in generating new technologies, and that undercuts the possibility of future development. Samuel writes, I want to ask you about the, the morality of deception. If you have a moral goal, but the most probable way to accomplish that goal is to deceive others, is that ethical? So this is a basic ends justifies the means question. And there are lots of people who have different answers on this. Uh, Immanuel Kant had a big problem with ends justify the means. He said that, he said that the golden rule basically should apply, the, what he called the categorical imperative. If, if you allow everybody to lie for the good of, of their better of their better morality, then everybody's just going to lie all the time, and that is a and that is a problem. Um, but th- here's what I would say: I would say that there's gradation in morality. And the, the the question that people are always asking, like you have a Jew in your basement, it's 1943, the Nazis are at the front door, and they're asking if you have the Jew in the basement, can you lie? Uh, and Kant had real problems with lying in this situation. I don't have a lot of problems in this situation because. Lying here is the second worst alternative. It's the, it's the second worst alternative, and the worst alternative is the worst alternative. And there's no possibility of, of a future recompense. So th- this has come up in the context of this election cycle, actually, where people say the moral goal is the, is the prevention of Hillary from becoming president, and the most probable way to accomplish that goal is by electing Trump, or not even electing Trump, by, by lying for Trump. In, in fact, there's morality to lying for Trump because you don't want Hillary elected. That logic, to me, only holds if you think Hillary is the worst thing in the world. If you think she's not the worst thing in the world, if you think she's really bad but not the worst thing ever, if you think there's a future to the country, then lying becomes a problem. If you think she's the worst thing ever, if you think she's Satan, then lying becomes required because you have to stop Satan. So all I would say is that unless it is the worst of the worst of the worst situations, lying in favor of the end goal is not acceptable. But it has to be the worst of the worst of the worst situations, and you have to be honest with yourself about whether it is that before you start lying. Grant says, in cinema and TV, we have seen countless reboots, remakes, sequels, prequels in the last 10 years. Anything to do with how the length of intellectual property protection keeps expanding by those pushing to extend it? Wouldn't having more things in the public domain be a positive? Appreciate any legal, moral, economic opinion on this phenomenon in recent cinema. Well, I mean, the the truth is the real reason they keep rebooting is because if you keep making money off the same movie, why would you stop making the same movie? If you can make $100 million off of every Spider-Man reboot, and his, his origin story has now been told more than Jesus's, 
then it's I think we all we all know, okay? We all get it. Uncle Ben gets shot. We're all there. We got it. All right. We don't need another reboot explaining that Uncle Ben got shot. But uh, the as far as your your more general question about having more things in the public domain, yeah, of course, having lots of things in the public domain is wonderful so long as you're not ripping anybody else off and stealing other people's intellectual property is is a problem. So that the purpose of copyright protection is I create a creative work. You don't get to steal it, copy it, put your own name on it, and pretend that it's yours, which is fraud as well as copyright violation. Uh, but you also don't get to just reprint my book, sell a million copies of it, and then take all the profit because you marketed it better than I did. You know, 80 years after I'm dead, then it's a different story. My relatives have already made whatever profit they're going to make off of it. And uh, it seems to me that there should be a pretty lengthy protection uh, for, for private, you know, for, for, uh, for intellectual property. That's one of the areas where I think that, that government may have a role is in protection of intellectual property. Because if you don't, then you have the, the high possibility of, of fraud and, and intellectual property theft. Now Michael says, Dear Ben, a friend of mine who's a well-known political analyst owes me 400 bucks for a 4-to-1, $100 bet we made on this election. I don't remember this bet, Michael K. from Los Angeles. I don't remember this bet. I, I'd be happy, Michael K., to pay that if you can provide me evidence that that happened. I know two people who received $4,000 apiece from one Benjamin Shapiro for, ha- for having bet wrong on this election. <laughs> um, Michael Medved received a $4,000 payment to his favorite charity, and David Bowes, who's a talk show host up in Seattle, received a $4,000 payment to his checking account. Um, but uh, I don't remember this bet happening, Michael K. Uh, if you can prove that it happened, I'd be more than happy uh, to, to pay the money. Um, after all, I would see it as a form of charity since you're poor. Uh, Emmanuel writes, what do you believe is the best way to counter the argument that the Republican Party became the racist party back in the 1960s? Uh, Tanner. Okay, so Tanner, uh, I've described, uh, or rather that's Emmanuel, I'm sorry. So, so Emmanuel, uh, I wrote a column about this yesterday. You can check it out at Daily Wire. Uh, the fact is that the, the movement toward the Republican Party in the South began in the 1950s, not the 1960s. It predated the 1960s. That's because of Cold War concerns, and it's also because of economic concerns. A lot of heavy industry had started started to move down into the South. Uh, A lot of industrialization was happening in the South. Uh, The 1960s did not remarkably change that trend. If it had, what you would have thought is that if it was just racism, what you would have figured is all the Democrats who were racist and were winning elections would have just switched to the Republican Party uh, in in how they ran, right? George Wallace was a Democrat when he ran for president in 1968. Uh, All the the Democratic racists stayed Democratic racists. And then both parties sort of moved away from racism. Uh, The Democratic Party moved away from overt racism and toward welfareism. Uh, The Republican Party did not embrace racism. The idea that the Republican Party just started to embrace racism is silly. Uh, There there are a lot of people who talk about the, the Nixon Southern strategy. Nixon talking about crime. Crime was a serious problem in the 1970s. There's a massive escalation in crime in the 1960s and 1970s. The fact that people saw there was a racial component to it was not Nixon's fault. There was a racial component to it. The rate of violent crime in the black community skyrocketed. Uh, you know, all of that has very little to do with, with racism and it has to do with a lot of social conditions, which is why you've seen changes all over the country with regard to politics that really have very little to do with race per se. Again, the best proof of this is that if the Democrats had really, if the Democrats in the South had thought the entire South is going to go Republican, they all would have switched party. Tanner says, "You said Madison versus Marbury was decided incorrectly. Why is that? If the Supreme Court did not perform judicial review, what would they do in reality? Well, the Supreme Court would have the power to look." not at the law and determine whether it was in line with the Constitution, the Supreme Court would have the power to interpret what the, what the law is under the Constitution, meaning a law is passed constitutionally, and now they have to determine what Congress meant when it wrote a particular provision, just like any other court does, right? This is what courts do on a routine basis with contracts. It would, they'd just be doing it with a piece of legislation. They wouldn't be the ultimate repository of constitutionality. And again, look at, the, look at the Constitution of the United States. There's no text that suggests that the Constitution of the United States was to be applied to legislation duly passed by the legislature by the Supreme Court of the United States. That was a power arrogated to itself. Marbury versus Madison uh, was wrongly decided. It actually skews the constitutional order because now you have one group that is beholden to the Constitution and two other branches that really aren't. They can do whatever they want, and then the Supreme Court is supposed to be the ultimate arbiter, which means the Supreme Court, when it comes to the Constitution, is more powerful than the other two branches. That is not how the founders foresaw it. It's why the founders bothered to put provisions in place like the notion they have to swear an oath to the Constitution of the United States if you are in any of these other positions of power. The branches were supposed to check each other, but there is no check on the Supreme Court's power to overrule a piece of legislation on behalf of the Constitution and read into it the value they see fit. Okay. Uh, Nina says, I enjoyed reading your article about leftists wanting to ban books like Huck Finn. I admit, however, I'm confused about this issue. 
but I'm not demanding books be banned, but I'm greatly concerned about some of the things my teenagers are required to read, such as books and stories laced with graphic violence and sexual content. These things are against our family values. I try to safeguard my kids. Well, this is one of the reasons why I support local control of schools. And what I mean by that is that you and your friends, if you pay for the school, you get to decide what's in it. The problem with doing this at a public school is now you're talking about general taxpayer sponsorship of banning works of art. And that gets into some pretty... It gets into pretty ugly territory. You really don't want the government deciding what can and cannot be allowed in a school because they can do that with politics, they can do that with the Bible, they can do that with a lot of things. They're already doing it, and it's really not good. Uh, this is why I like the idea of local, locally controlled schools. If you're going to have public schools, uh, private schools, charter schools, things that give more control back to the parents, you can have control over your school. If you and your friends want to want to not have a book at your particular school, I can think you're wrong, but it doesn't implicate me. If the Virginia school board decides it's going to start banning books, that does implicate me. Michael says, what is the difference between originalism versus living document interpretations of the Constitution? Well, I mean, the main difference in a nutshell is that originalism believes that the Constitution is like any other document. You read it, it has words, the words mean something, they mean what they meant at the time. They didn't magically change and shift. Right? To give an example, the Constitution of the United States says the government has a job to provide for the general welfare. Today, people take welfare to mean actual welfare programs. The Constitution did not mean welfare programs. The living constitution would suggest, oh, well, okay, well, today we mean welfare, and we want the constitution to provide for the general welfare, so that means big, big spending welfare programs. This is what the left actually does. The living constitution just suggests that you and your friends get to read your own values into a document somebody else wrote and verified, and it's not your job to do that. That is a betrayal of what the judicial system is for. Leon writes, why does the Constitution have to specifically refer to freedom of religion? Can't worship, for example, just be classified as general freedom? Well, the reason that it was specifically singled out is because sometimes freedoms come into conflict in the view of a lot of people. So, for example, let's say that, that you have a – let's say that you have a law – well, actually, this, this is the Supreme Court ruling, right? So let's say that you have a, a, a rule that you don't like people smoking pot. And there's a tribe that uses pot in order to get high for their religious rituals. Or, less controversially, let's say that the Jews use wine for Kiddush, and Catholics use wine for communion. And prohibition goes into effect. There's a constitutional amendment. And prohibition goes into effect. Should there still be a carve-out for you to practice your freedom of religion? The answer is yes. You, there should be, because religion has to be, religion is, is the bulwark of a civilized society. If you don't have a, a religious community, uh, then they're not going to act decently enough. The social fabric won't exist enough to preserve freedom. The, the founders were trying to single out freedom of religion. Well, I mean, look, the, the, the question that you're asking is a little bit too broad, just to be fair, because when you say, shouldn't, every, shouldn't it be classified as general freedom, if that were true, you wouldn't need a Bill of Rights. That was actually the argument that many of the anti-federalists made. A lot of the anti-federalists said, don't have a Bill of Rights, because now you're specifying freedoms, you're, you're naming the freedoms, and if you name all the freedoms, then... What about the freedoms you don't name? Do those exist? And that was actually, I think, a well-founded critique of the Bill of Rights, saying, okay, well, you say there's, there's a right to freedom of religion, but you didn't mention that there's a right to freedom of, of sex, for example. So can the government now impinge on that because you didn't mention it? And a lot of the advocates of the Constitution they, uh, and the Bill of Rights, they said, well, it's better that we should list some of them. If we miss some of them, then we have this catch-all paragraph, right? This is, this is the Tenth Amendment that reserves all the rights back to the state and the people, respectively, if we didn't mention them. So we're not saying this is an exclusive Bill of Rights. We're saying that this is some of the Bill of Rights. It's not the only rights, but it's some of them. But a lot of the anti-federalists said, the problem is if you list them, you're suggesting that it's exclusive and comprehensive, and you're going to miss some of them. So your argument that, there should, that you don't have to list freedom of religion also applies to freedom to bear arms, for example, right? Why should you list a freedom to bear arms? Isn't that classified as just general freedom? The answer is yes. And I think there's a strong case to be made the Bill of Rights was actually a problem, that, that people read the Bill of Rights, but they don't actually read the Constitution of the United States. The constitutional structure was supposed to protect you. The Bill of Rights was just supposed to be a reminder as to what rights you hold. But now we flipped it because the Bill of Rights is easier to read and people are stupid. Instead, we've focused in on the Bill of Rights and we've forgotten about the constitutional structure. So now you have essentially a presidential executive dictatorship where we don't respect any of those rights, but we pretend we do because the Bill of Rights is super, super understandable and the Constitution actually requires you to abide by a structure that has some, that has some gridlock involved. Tyler says, 
Hey, Ben, love the show. I'm currently active duty Navy. Wanted to know your thoughts on the military's push toward a liberal agenda. The Navy just recently changed our job titles to Navy occupational codes and took the word man out of them. What's going on here? I, I don't think that the military should be used typically as an element of social engineering. Uh, it's one thing to argue that the military ought to be opened to black folks the same as white folks because there's no difference in capacity. But when you're talking about the idea that you're going to be having women in men's jobs, and those jobs require more upper body strength, right? They tried to do this with, with marine frontline positions. And it turned out that women were failing out because women don't have the same standards, uh, physically speaking, as, as men typically. The average man is much stronger than the average woman. Once you start watering down military efficacy in favor of, in favor of social engineering, you've defeated the point of the military. That's not what the military is for. The military is there to break things and kill people and maintain the peace. That's what the military is for. It's not there so you can act out your wonderful and joyous feelings about life. A final question. Ben says, do you think the Fourth Amendment encompasses emails, phone calls, texts, etc.? Justice Scalia seemed to think this should be left up to the state legislation and wasn't covered by the Constitution. Now, I don't think Justice Scalia said that, that emails and phone calls and texts shouldn't be covered by the Constitution. I think that Justice you know, there's there's a case to be made that a lot of the Constitution was originally applicable only, only to the federal government, not to the state government. Uh, yes, of course, the Fourth Amendment encompasses emails, phone calls, and texts. Otherwise, you wouldn't have a problem with the government just seizing your phone with no reason, like coming over, grabbing all of your emails for no reason. Of course, it applies to anything to which you have a reasonable expectation of privacy, and that includes things like private emails. Okay, that brings us to the end of the week. Uh, can't wait to see you next week. Uh, we couldn't wait to see you next week so much we did a Friday show for you, so you should be grateful. And that gives you something extra to listen to over the weekend. So we'll be back on Monday with all of the updates. Have yourself a merry little weekend. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values, and that free should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick-charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com slash Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.